Hey, guys. He is risen. Hey. Man, I got to tell you what. I was sitting there and I was thinking, just during worship and him sharing what God has done in his life, I was thinking, this has got to be so weird for people. There's some, some of you got to be thinking, this is the weirdest thing. Why did we come here? Why are we in a gym? Why is that guy saying the word pornography out loud in front of everybody? This is so strange. But for most of us in this room, a lot of us in this room, we're a part of something called the church. And for us, this is normal because this is what Jesus did. 2,000 years ago, uh, a man got on a cross. And for a lot of people, we think he's just a good man. But three days later, we found out he wasn't just a man. There was something else going on. And he is far greater and far better than that. And he's the kind of God, the kind of man who changes people's lives. I want to encourage you uh, to pay attention to what you just heard, uh, to go and read Jake's story. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of mine today as well. But this is the guy we're going to be talking about, this Jesus. I, I don't know, is it surprising anybody I'm going to talk about Jesus today? Nobody? Great. If you've got a Bible, open it up. You can go to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be starting at verse 15, and we're going to talk about Jesus. And it's going to be wonderful. And it's going to be good. And I'm so glad you're here. If I don't know you, I probably won't get to meet you before you leave. So hello. My name is Greg. You are who you are. Come find me sometime. I'd love to meet you. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. And we're going to take a look at who this guy is. And I want to tell you guys, he's not just a good guy. He's not just a good guy. He is a good guy. But he's so much more than a good guy. Verse 15, it says this. It says this about Jesus. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation, of all creation. If you, were to, if you could be there 2,000 years ago and you got to sit on Golgotha and look up at this man who's on this cross, you would be looking at a 33-year-old man. And if you could look into his eyes, you wouldn't just be looking at a physical man. You would be looking at God himself. Just like when you look up here, you see a 32-year-old man. You see the physical person of who I am. But I am so much more than just a physical body, just as you are so much more than just a physical body. Your life is worth a lot more than just the flesh. You are a soul. But what was behind the eyes of Jesus, the man who was on the cross, far outranks what is behind the eyes of every single one of us. It says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn. So that can be a little confusing for a lot of people, okay? And uh, because people go, will say, like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say, oh, see, he was a created being. Jesus is just like us. He was created. The, the problem is they're wrong. That's not what Scripture says, okay? It says firstborn of all creation. It's going to explain it a little bit more. But let me tell you what that means, the firstborn of all creation. If it doesn't mean that he was created, what does it mean? Well, it's common knowledge, okay? Uh, most of you probably know this, that in ancient cultures, the firstborn in a family has special rights, privileges, and responsibilities in the family. You knew that, right? Special rights, privileges, and responsibilities. This is what it's talking about. So to kind of give us an example, talking about David in the Old Testament, y'all maybe have heard of him, Psalm 89, verse 27, it says this about David. It says, I, God, will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Now, if you know anything about David, David is not the firstborn in his family. That man's like six down. He's like the seventh boy in the family. He's nobody. He's a runt. He's, he's insignificant. But God says 
that he's going to make him the firstborn among all the kings. In other words, he's going to have higher rights, higher privileges, higher responsibilities than any of the kings of his day. And in the same way, Jesus has higher rights, responsibilities, privileges of any man. In other words, he is the highest of all men, is what that just said. Now, why is Jesus the highest of all men? Well, let's keep reading. It says this, verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, Paul really cannot make this any plainer for us, guys. Jesus, he could not have been created because everything that was created, he created. He says everything that's in the heavens, and what he's talking about is the spiritual realm. And he says everything that's on earth, what he's talking about is the physical realm. Everything that we're seeing, we touch, and we feel. So everything that is on scene and behind the scene, God created, and that God was Jesus. Jesus created all those things. Jesus is God. And so what it says next is thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. What does that even mean? Well, that's actually applied to the heavenlies. It's talking about the angels. And so what he's talking about, Paul, he's saying that behind the scenes, there's all these angels, right? And there's a hierarchy to these angels. But Paul's not trying to like showcase what the hierarchy is. He's not trying to tell you, is Michael higher than Gabriel, whatever the case may be. What he's trying to say is regardless of what the angel's rank is, the man who's on the side of the road crucified to a cross is higher ranking than all of them. That's what it's saying. And so Paul uh, says this, he writes this, because around 1900 years ago, there were people just like you, dressed a little bit different, right, in a place called Colossae. And they had an infatuation with angels. They were just like, they heard about these angels, they knew they had power, and so they were like, man, Let's call on these angels for help when things go wrong, okay? So they would wear these necklaces that had like angels' names on them, like Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, like, come and help me. It was kind of like an angelic life alert. You remember those commercials? It's kind of like, like this, like when you, when you go down, right? Just like going down like, oh, Michael, right? Calling on them, hoping they're going to come help you. That's what these people thought. They thought, you know, maybe these angels would come to help me. But the problem is, in Colossae, and the problem that we have as well is the angels and all the things that we put our hope in, the angels are not our emergency response team. And they don't submit to you and your little necklace. They submit to Jesus. And Jesus is not an emergency response team. He's not the guy who's there for you at Christmas and Easter. And he's not the guy who's there for you just when things go down and things are going south and, oh, Jesus, I need you. Click the button. Maybe he's going to come. Now, I'm not saying he's not those things. He's just so much more than those things. Right, church? He is so much more than those things. He's not the when I need you, God. He's the all the time God. And why is he the all the time God? Well, it says it because all things were created through him, but not only were they created through him, this man who's nailed to a cross, it says that all things were created for him. What does that mean? It means that he's not just the agent of creation. He's not just the guy or the God who created all things. It says when he created all things, everything was meant to be for his advantage. Think about that. So you mean to tell me, Greg, that my life, everything in my life, is supposed to be for Jesus? 
Biblically, church, what is it? The answer? Yes. Everything in your life was created by this guy named Jesus, and it was all meant to be for him. Every single bit was meant to be to his advantage. Now, you can disagree with that, right? You have all the freedom in the world to go, you know what? I think it was all created for me. So here's to you, Jesus. Love you. Here's 20 bucks. Going on my way. Totally. You could do that. Go for it. No judgment. But you got to also understand that he is before all things. This 33-year-old is before all things. And it says that in him all things hold together, which is weird. Which is, I mean, not weird, but it's kind of cool. I can't really hold all things together in my life. Can any of you, are you guys all holding it together? Every parent in the room is not holding it together right now because you were trying to get your kid in a pastel dress so you could take pictures of them and they weren't having it. You were not holding it together. But it says this Jesus, this guy, who's a good guy, whose hands are being held together to a piece of wood by nails, at the same time is holding together the cosmos. There's a psalm, Psalm 75, verse 3. If this is true, Psalm 75, verse 3 applies to Jesus even when he's nailed to a cross. It says this, when the earth totters and all of its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Man, when our world shakes, we, we never find out how much control we don't have until the world shakes, until a wave crashes on the shore and kills 100,000 people, until cancer hits our life. Our lives are constantly spilling out of control, and he's saying he's holding it all together. It's amazing. So he's the creator of all the things that we see, the heavenlies and the earth and all things around. He's sustaining it and helping, helping it be together. It was created for him. But he's not just that. He's also the head of the body, the church. That's what it says in that verse 18. Jesus is the leader of the church, at least anything that deserves to be called a church, is led by Jesus. Anything, any church that's not led by Jesus is not a church, or at least it's not a living church. It's a dead church, and you shouldn't go near it. It stinks, okay? It'll make you sick. But Jesus, it says, is the head of the church. Just like your head on top of your shoulders is in charge of your body, he's in charge of us. He tells us how to think. He tells us where to go. He tells us what to do. And most importantly, he tells us and shows us how to love one another. He's the leader. I'm not the leader of this church. And all the people said, amen. Right? You got a better 30-year-old in charge of this, and it's the God that's before all of time. He is the head of the body, the church. And 2,000 years ago, it says he is the beginning of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What is this talking about? He's risen. He's risen indeed. This is talking about the resurrection. He was the first one ever to be raised from the grave. And I just watched a man talk about how he was raised from the grave. His name's Calvin. And then around this room, there's a lot of you who've been raised to the grave, right? Praise Jesus. Today is for you, church. It's for us to celebrate that in the beginning. 2,000 years ago, at the beginning of the church, there was a man who was raised from the dead. Now, the question is, how in the world did Jesus do this? He was seen by 500 people. How in the world did he pull this off, right? Scratch out this whole swoon theory and all this ridiculousness. How did he do this? 
Well, verse 19 tells us exactly how Jesus pulled this off. It says this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's how he did it. He's God. Do you understand this? Here's the thing you need to know about God, all right? The thing you need to know about God is God does not sin, and God does not make any mistakes. And so if all of God is pleased to dwell in this man named Jesus, that means there's no sin and no mistakes in him, all right? Romans 6 in the Bible tells us if there was mistakes in Jesus, we would not be putting up here, he is risen. We would put, he died, and you wouldn't have showed up, and there wouldn't be Easter eggs, because that'd be super not jolly. We wouldn't be celebrating that, right? We wouldn't be celebrating this. But the fact is that he did, which signals the fact that he did not have sin, therefore he is God. In other words, guys, listen to me. This Jesus church, remember, no man, no judge, and God himself had nothing on Jesus. Absolutely nothing. That's who he is. Now, verse 20, let me read this to you, and I'm going to summarize these five verses and make it super simple for guys like me. It says this, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile, which means to make right to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, it's going to repeat this here in a little bit, and I'll talk about it. But let me just summarize everything we just read about this guy who's just a good guy. Let me read it. It says this. He, basically, it says, he is the physical image of God. His rights, privileges, and responsibilities surpass everyone's. He created all things. He outranks everyone. Despite all the things that we live for, he is who we are made for. He is before everything. He is holding everything together. He leads the church. He created the church by laying down his life for her. He's making everything right in the physical world and in the spiritual world by taking the wrong of both worlds on himself. Simply put, guys, this Jesus Church isn't just a good guy, right? What is he? He is God. That's the most important thing that we need to remember this morning as we celebrate something we celebrate every week. You know what? If you showed up for Easter, man, come next week. We celebrate it again. He is God. And you got to know that. He's not just a good guy, right? Now, in contrast, here's the next thing you need to know. I'm going to be a big Debbie Downer. You are not God, okay? You're not God. I know you're trying, and your wife's trying to help you with that, but you are not God, and thank God for that, right? You are not God. So Paul says all that, and it's like a hymn. He's like singing this wonderful, amazing song about this guy named Jesus. Call him crazy, but this is who he worships. And then the next thing he says, verse 21, check this out. And you who once were, notice this is in the past tense, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So what's going on here? Well, it's kind of like this, okay? Uh, when I moved to Wyoming, I moved from North Carolina. One of the major differences between North Carolina and Wyoming is we have trees, okay? There are these big, tall, brown things with green stuff sticking out of the end. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but that's what they are. And so where I'm from, when you go hunting, okay, you don't need one of these things. You know what this is? 
It's a range finder. Because I go, well, that tree's 10 yards. That one's like 15. So it's easy to know where you're at. So when I moved here, first time I went hunting, I went up to McCullough, totally treeless. And I'm laying down, getting ready to take the shot with a guy named Kelly Carnahan. And we got this deer in sight. And he goes, all right, hey, before you take the shot, how far do you think that deer is from you? And I was like, hmm, 150 yards. And he pulls up the range finder. He goes, that thing is 400 yards away. I said, what? 400 yards away? That's crazy. Well, this passage right here in verse 21, after following what we just read, is like Paul pulling up a rangefinder and he's looking, he's going, hey guys, listen, hey, compared to this Jesus, you're out of range. You're nowhere near this. In fact, you are alienated. And that's what it really means to be alienated. Alienated means you are separated from God. And you're not just separated because some of you guys are going, I could take that 400-yard shot. <laughs> what Paul is saying is, listen, no, no, no. You are out of range. You can't even, you can't get close. You are nowhere near. And that's what it means. And when you look at verses 15 through 20, you're like, well, duh. Right, church? Think about that. How many of you guys are like holding the pillars of the earth up? No. Like I said, you can barely hold yourself together. Jesus is sustaining and holding all the world. So we look at it and go, yeah, there's a huge difference between us. We were separated from God. And because of that, our lives, listen to me. Remember this, church? Our lives were massively different than what God had planned for us. What do I mean by that? You see, here's the thing you need to understand, and we know it now. But God had planned for us. He, what he had planned for us is for us to be like a tree planted by streams of water, which bears fruit in season, this beautiful, wonderful fruit. Now, what does the Bible tell us is the fruit that God had for us? He tells us in Galatians that it's love and joy and peace. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That is exactly what God designed for you to have. Now, I got a question for you. Everybody, crowd involvement here. If you're wrong, just say it quietly and it'll probably get drowned out. Would you describe humanity according to those characteristics? Loving and kind, gentle, self-control? No, you're giggling a little bit. No, absolutely not. No, you would not. Watch any news station for about 10 minutes, 20 seconds, and you'll know it's out of control. Now, we know that. Now, what's the problem? What, is, what has gotten us off? Why are we not where God has planned for us to be? That's the real question. But before we get to there and we see how Paul answers that, let's make it a little more personal, shall we? Can I ask you, are those things a description of your life? that you are loving and joy-filled, bounding in peace, kind, gentle, full of self-control. Anybody want to claim all those? Here's, here's the thing. What we like to do is we love to criticize the world and go, those people and those people. And if you're here and you're not a part of the church, I want to tell you, I want to ask for your forgiveness. On behalf of the church, we're some of the most judgmental people you'll ever meet, right? And some people in their hearts are going, amen, right? 
But we love to critique the world, right? We get on Fox and we watch Tucker rip somebody. We're like, get him, Tucker, right? And so we're just like all about it. And we have so much joy in tearing down others. But the reality is that within our own camp and in ourselves, we have this. Now, I'm not going to be overly critical of you. I want to be honest, guys. This has not always been the characteristics of my life. And this is not always the characteristics of my life every single day. My story is not a story of bearing fruit My story is a story of thorns. And what are thorns all about? Thorns are all about hurting others to protect yourself. Let me say that again. Thorns are about hurting others to protect yourself. If you could describe me in one word, the word would be selfish. Insanely narcissistic and selfish. At a very young age, I had just huge fears of not being liked and not being loved. And so I would change my dress and my attitude and how I worked and how I did things just so that I could get uh, approval from others. I just, I begged for approval. And so sometimes I would rip apart other people just so I could be approved. But I didn't just want approval. I also wanted pleasure. And I found that I can get approval and a pleasure in the same place. And that place was with girls. And so at a very young age, I would it's, you know, it was kind of easy. You love on them, kind of be kind to them. Maybe they had some daddy issues, and if you love them well enough, they'll like you. So then I start feeling good about myself. And then in sixth grade, I came across pornography. And then I realized, oh, I could get more out of this. And so then I found the sex. Pornography became for me a full-fledged, life-altering addiction. And it destroyed me. And I began to treat women poorly, and I hurt myself, and I hurt others all along the way. I was incredibly selfish. That's who I was. And it got so bad, and I felt so guilty for what I was doing that I began to do things to cope. And so I uh, came across uh, weed at a young age, and so I started smoking to be able to cover up for the facts. It started with just this exciting thing to have fun, but eventually became something I needed to cope. And then getting drunk, and then lying, and then I stole from some convenience stores, I stole from my school. Eventually I got kicked out of a military school, and I arrived in Char- uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and in a futon and Green Acres apartments. I laid there and I begged God, who I really didn't even believe in, to kill me. And guys, this is exactly what Paul describes as evil when he describes in this passage. That's what it is. By definition, evil is what lies between profound immorality and wickedness in something that is harmful and undesirable. Church, we we were there, right? We were there. Basically, it's everything outside of God's design for us, and we knew it. Guys, I want everyone in the room, if, you're, if you don't believe in Jesus or not, I want to let you know everybody in this room who calls himself a Christian, we were all there. All of us. Now, your thorns in your life might be different than the thorns that are in my life, right? And your thorns might be better than Hitler's thorns, okay? Because we like picking on Hitler. They might be better than his thorns, But the reality is every single one of us has these thorns, these ways that we're self-protecting and hurting others in the process, seeking our own desires. Now, again, the question is not the thorns. I don't want to get over-focused on what you're doing. The real question is, why are we doing this? How are we getting there? Don't you want to know? I wanted to know. Here's the reason why we're getting there. Because at the basic level of who you are, at the core of who you are in your heart, You are hostile to God. At the core of who you are, in your heart, you are hostile to God. 
And listen to me. In this way, you are just like me. And you're just like Calvin. And if you go read Jake's story, you're just like Jake. And you're just like Hitler. Your thorns may be different than Hitler's thorns, but the reality is the source of your thorns is exactly the same. You're hostile to God. Church, isn't that true? We are hostile towards God, and that's what got us to that place, though some of them are different. Now, what does it mean to be hostile? You're like, Greg, hostile? I'm not like, like swinging at God or something like that. Well, hostile, what Paul racing means is you're unfriendly, you're opposed to his ways, you're antagonistic, and sometimes militaristically against what God has for you. Like I said, he had a plan for you. We just said, you know what? I don't want that plan. Where did this problem begin? Well, Chet told us where it began. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, or yeah, Genesis chapter 3, God gave us uh, this wonderful plan. It's that he's going to sit with us, he's going to abide with us, he's going to be with us, we're going to bear fruit, it's going to be a wonderful place, we have all the food we want, naked and unashamed. It was this beautiful, wonderful thing. But in that process, somehow, some doubts creep into our brain, and we started to think, you know what? Maybe God's not good. Okay, the dumbest thing you could ever think in the midst of all the good, right? We go, maybe God's not good. And from that doubt about God's goodness, which is the source of all of our problems, we said, you know what? I think I got a better idea, and I'm going to go this way. That's what it means to be hostile against God. And when we did that, when the first two people did that, it kicked off billions of people being hostile to God, and something happened. Genesis 3, 12 through 18. It's not that God just cursed us. What happened was everything outside of what God's plan for us is, is just a curse, You understand? It's just a natural result. It's a curse. And so what it says in Genesis 3, 17 and 18, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The first two human beings despised God and thorn world was born. And after Adam and Eve, all of us have continued to make the same choice. And church, we, every one of us, we know it, right? We, we felt it. We've done it. We've separated. We've alienated ourselves. And if every one of you guys would look and you would pull out your own rangefinder just for a hot second, just for a minute, you'd pull it out. You take a second to think about who God is and what he's expected, and you would see that you are out of range. We're out of range. We were out of range for some of us. We were out of range. So how do we get back is always the real question, right? Like, how do I get back into a relationship with Jesus? How do I fix this problem, right? How do I fix this? What do I need to do? How can I get back to him? Now, Here's the thing. This is where a lot of pastors will make mistakes. And I don't want to make this mistake. What they'll do is go, listen, you sinned, you made a mistake, and now it's time for you to take responsibility. Okay? Get a haircut. Get a real job. Don't be a slob. Stop cussing. Stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Do this. Do that. Right? Do all these things. But the problem is no matter what you do, you're not going to get back to God. Trying to do it that way is like painting thorns red and hoping that God's convinced they're apples. It's not going to trick him. Now, you can convince me that you're a good guy, and I'll pay for it when I bite down on what you call righteousness, but it's not going to work with God. God's standard is so high, we are out of range. We can't get back. 
So you want to know what the answer really is? The answer is and was that we were hopeless. There's nothing that we can do, at least on our own end, right? But today's a party day because God did something for us. What did Jesus do? Like I said, verse 21 is in the past tense for many of us in the room. It's the reason why we sang songs, which might be weird for some of you, but we sing songs of praise and he's great and he's wonderful and we love him and he loves us. We sing those because it's past tense. We used to be alienated, but now we are not. Church, we were alienated, but now he is with us and for us and he will never forsake us. Amen? We were hostile, but now we are his children and co-heirs with Jesus. Amen? Come on, be confident. We were only evil, but now, by the grace of Jesus, we are justified in daily becoming more like our Savior Jesus. Amen? Yeah, you bet your boots it's true. So what happened? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Go to verse 22. If you've got a Bible, it's great. If you don't, it's on the screen. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. What has he done for us? Reconciled. Reconciled. What does that mean? It means to be made right. It's kind of like this. We just finished tax season, right? And uh, what's tax season like? It's just like a bunch of stress and figuring out how much I can lie and not lie. So what we do is uh, a lot of us will end up hiring accountants, okay? And we hire these accountants and we say, please, here's my money. Like, tell me, what do I owe the government? Now, here's the hope, right? What's everybody's hope? What's your hope? Okay, your greatest hope is what? You're going to get some money back, right? Give me back some of my money, right? Okay, at least you're hoping that what? You don't owe anything and you break even. You're just like, it's zero. Just like, okay, we're good. All right, all right. It's good to go. What you do not want to hear from your accountant is what? You owe some money. It's not what you want to hear. Okay? Well, our Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it's like an email from our accountant, and our accountant's name is Paul. And he says, hey, I got some bad news for you. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's your tax return. Uh, you owe a lot, and you're out of range. You can't pay this. Romans 6.23 says, it's like you, you, you send a message back to Paul. You're like, okay, so what, what really do I owe? And he says, Romans 6.23, well, hey, the wages of your sin is death. So the first thing I need to let you know is, I'm really sorry, but you're going to be executed. You're going to die. And you go, oh, gosh, is that, well, please tell me that's it. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it appointed for man to die once, after that comes Judgment. And if the God we read about in the first five verses is the God who he says he is, he's created all things, and you were created for him, and you made every decision in your life, not for him, but for yourself, doesn't he have every right to judge us? I mean, think for a second. And so what it's kind of like is like you get this, you get this record, all right? Here's all, the, here's all the ways you've fallen shorts in one book. This book's not, not even close to big enough for me. And... Here's all your sin. Here's the accounting of all the things that you said, no, I don't need you, God. I got my own ideas. I'm going to do it my own way. And this is what he did. This is it. It's all there. And you can't pay this. If everybody in the whole world were to donate you the money, you still couldn't do it. They were to give you all their church attendance, still wouldn't do anything. You got too much. And so what does Jesus do? He comes and he says, listen, hey, I'm going to reconcile your account. I'm going to make it right. 
How does Jesus make it right? He says he makes it in, in his body of flesh. In other words, guys, when Jesus got on the cross a couple days ago, it was like all of your accounts went on Jesus. You see this? And it's gone. You see? And because he's not just a good guy, but in him is God and all the fullness of God, he can handle all this and he can pay for all of it. Listen, for every single one of you in this room. But not only does he take this, what does he do? He takes his righteousness and you're not left just free, scotch free. You didn't break even with Jesus. Church, we didn't break even. He gives us all of his righteousness, all of his privileges. We become children of God and co-heirs with him. Now, that seems kind of ridiculous. Here's the thing. I've had to pay taxes. None of you came to my house saying, Greg, I'm going to pay your taxes. So why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, in the second half right here of this sentence, he tells us that he did it in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. In other words, you had nothing to stand on and he wants to help you stand before Jesus. He wants to present you to God by taking all of what you had on himself and giving you all that he has as yours. That is what he wants to do. Now, again, the question still is, I don't get it. Why do you want to present me before the Lord? Why do you want to do that for me? Well, Jesus tells us a parable, and he says he's kind of like a woman. This is from Luke chapter 15. He says, I'm kind of, it's kind of like a woman who, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Listen, somebody in this room needs to hear this this morning. The reason that Jesus wanted to do all that for you, because he feels like he lost you. And your whole life, you've been running from God, and what you don't realize is he has been running after you the whole time. Some of you need to hear this in this room. And when he finds you, you know what he does? He gives you, if you believe and you trust and you give your life to Jesus, and you say, you know what, I can't, I'm overwhelmed by your love, I have been a sinner, I've ran, I cannot believe you would come out here to get me, and he says, that's fine, I will give you a new life. And he says, he's going to take us, and he says he wants to present us before God, what does that even mean? It's kind of like he wants to parade us to the Lord, all right? Whereas you couldn't stand before the Lord, now he wants to say, hey, come with me. And he puts his arm around you, right? And he takes you, and he's going to take you to the Lord. Remember Calvin said, if I were to be asked about a, one, a scale of 1 to 10, if, what are the odds I'm going to be in heaven? He said a 10. The next question we usually ask people is, if you were to stand before the Lord today, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, when Jesus is grabbing you and he's parading you and all the angels are singing because you repented, they're worshiping and this parade's going on and balloons and all this crazy stuff is happening and he takes you to the Lord, what are you going to say? I'll tell you what I'd say. I'll tell you what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, God, you shouldn't. You shouldn't let me in. I was alienated, hostile. I was doing evil deeds. I hurt more people than I helped. But because of what this man did for me, I know you will let me in. And you know why he did it for you? 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves you. That's why he did it. He loves you. And he doesn't want you to be dead anymore, so he's searching the house, and he's trying to find you. Look, I don't know where you guys are in this room, right? Some of you in the church, this is a great reminder to worship Jesus, and you're just like, man, what an amazing day. I want to sing. I want to worship this God. But maybe you, some of you are like my friend Jake. Go read his story. In the beginning, Jake, Jake felt like he was too bad for Jesus. Jake did some things that he regretted, and, and he thought he was too bad for Jesus, and Jesus couldn't save him, so he ran further into where he was, where he was going, running from Jesus. But Jesus kept chasing him because Jesus is he's looking. And you need to hear this. Romans 5.20 says this, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, there is no sin that grace cannot cover. Now, some of you in this room, you're thinking that you're okay. You're thinking your tax return is going to come back as like even, right? I'm not a bad guy. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't get dry. I wasn't Hitler, right? I want to tell you, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, it's the way to death. Don't be too convinced that you're good enough. You're just painting your thorns red and you're hoping they're apples. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of the thorns that are in your life, regardless of the things that have happened to you because of the thorns of other people's lives, which you did not deserve, I want to tell you right now, Jesus wants to change you. He wants to give you all the fruit that we talked about earlier of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control. And church, is he not giving that to us? Is he? Guys, there's people in this room you should be envious of because their lives are being transformed by the gospel. Now, here's the thing you need to know. Last thing I want to tell you. Some of you are like, praise God. And you're saying praise God because what I'm about to tell you is so good. You got thorns in your life, but you need to know that when Jesus was crucified, he had something on his head. What was it? It was a crown of thorns. It was a signal back to the curse. The Romans put it on Jesus because they were trying to mock Jesus. You shouldn't mock Jesus. Because every time you mock Jesus, he might be doing something else that you don't even know is going on. The Romans were trying to mock Jesus by putting a crown of thorns on his head. But Jesus was doing something with those same crown of thorns that they didn't realize. You see, the thorns were a signal to the curse. And Jesus is a king. This is thorn world. This is the place where we hurt each other. And Jesus did what kings do who conquer other kings. What do kings do who conquer other kings? When they conquer another king, they make him get on his knees. And they take the crown off his head and they put it on their own and say, I'm in charge of everything this guy used to be in charge of. And so when they put that crown of thorns on Jesus' head, he goes, I am now king of thorn world. And all the curse of sin that was on you, I'm taking on myself. I am in charge now. And so when, at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said these words, and Jesus comes through with everything he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And with Jesus' last breath, crowned king of this world, he said, it is finished. And every promise finds its amen in Jesus. And so allow me to read this verse to you. And I want you to listen. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Church, he's coming again. We're not done, but it will be finished fully one day for us. Friends who don't believe in Jesus, I want to tell you, he is good, and he wants nothing but good for you. As we sing this next song, it's the last song, okay? Guys, you can come up, let's sing. As we sing this last song, I want you to consider, is Jesus just a good guy, or is he God? Stand with me, let me pray. Well, Lord, today is the day that you have made. 2,000 years ago, you planned that every single one of these people would be in this room listening to me. And I pray right now their hearts are, are listening to you. Father, I've got a reason to sing. And I've got a reason to sing because I had nothing I could do and you set me free. And I want to praise your name. I want to lift you up. <clears throat> My brother Calvin is free. And you're restoring him day by day. My brother Jake is free. And you're restoring him day by day. My wife Bonnie is free. And you're restoring her day by day, giving her goodness. I pray for my friends in this room who are letting fear control them, letting selfishness and pride control them. I pray that you would meet them right now where they are. You'd show them that you're not just a good guy. You are the Christ appointed for them. And that right now you're as close as their own skin. I pray they see that you love them. I pray that today what is past tense in Scripture would become past tense for them. And today you give them a reason to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.